Well, hey, everybody. I know I say it each week, but whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it's great to have you along for the ride. And a special welcome if you're here in the building because you didn't have power at your house. And you walked in and you were like, wait, they have popcorn. And now you're back in present. So, hey, great, great to be with you. Uh, as many of you know, we're in the third week of a series that we've called Reinventing Religion. And as I've mentioned, I think it's some of the most important material that I've ever shared with you because it takes us right to the heart of what Jesus came to do and who his followers are to be in our world today. Okay, so now to get us going, I need to let you know that last week's talk, uh, the one about the dangers of blending the old covenant and the new covenant, generated more feedback than like any talk I can remember. Uh, seriously, all week long, um, I'm around town and a bunch of you are stopping me at like the gas station and the grocery store, like right by the avocados because we're squeezing avocados because that's what you got to do, right? Uh, Vitaly's Pizza and even at four different Starbucks. <laughs> you all have a problem, okay? That's all I'm saying, right? But, but the conversations are great and y'all basically said the same thing. You're like, man, I grew up in church and I had no idea how simple and how beautiful Christianity was supposed to be. And then all of these, questions, all of these conversations all kind of ended up at the same spot. Y'all asked me a different version of the same question and it goes like this. What happened? <laughs> right? Like, it was supposed to be so simple and so beautiful. Like, in, in your own religious experience, you're looking back on it, and like, there are a lot of adjectives that you might come up with, but simple and beautiful are not those adjectives. And so, what happened? How did so much of Christianity get so off track? And, and honestly, that's a great question. And it's what the one I want to explore with you today. In fact, for the next 25 minutes or so, I'm going to do my best to summarize 1,400 years of church history. So, buckle up. <laughs> Um, and I also need uh, to apologize in advance because obviously I'm going to have to fly really high in order to do that. But as you'll soon see, I think this is a really important story for us to hear. Uh, and now before I get started, I also need to make um, a quick disclaimer, especially uh, for those of you who came from a Catholic background, because you may find yourselves getting a bit defensive at some point during the message. And, and before you do, I just want you to know something. Your friends that are sitting next to you that grew up in a Protestant background are probably going to get defensive today too. Huh? So there's like plenty of blame to go around. So, okay. So for those of you who haven't been with us yet um, in this series, let me briefly explain sort of what we've covered so far uh, before we get to the history lesson. So we began this series two weeks ago with an observation that sort of undergirds these talks. And the observation goes like this. God sent Jesus to completely reinvent religion. In other words, the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth signaled the end of one era in human religion and the dawn of another, one in which traditional religious forms and understandings would be rendered functionally obsolete. And we also noted that traditionally religions all over the world have organized around four common expectations, and they go like this. Uh, you always had sacred places, sacred texts, sacred leaders, and sincere followers. And here's what I mean when I say that. Um, ancient religions almost always identified sacred places, most often temples, into which people brought sacrifices, something of value that they could give to the god of the temple in order to make and maintain peace with the god of the temple. Uh, these sacred places also served as the home for sacred texts that were controlled and interpreted by special sacred religious leaders who would tell the sincere followers how they had to live their lives 
or else, right? Like, or else they might find themselves corrected or cursed or punished by the god or gods for whom that particular religion was developed. Well, not surprisingly, as a result of this system, people in the ancient world often lived with sort of this simmering fear of being judged somehow unworthy by the gods and perhaps even being sentenced after this life is done to some sort of eternal punishment. Anyway, so it's into that reality that God sent Jesus with a mission to completely reinvent religion. And as we've noted, the specifics of that reinvention were like as stunning as they were disruptive. Here's two highlights to show you what I mean. First, Jesus established a new covenant or a new testament between people and God. And a covenant or testament is basically like the rules that define the terms of a relationship. In this case, the relationship between people and God. Under previous religious covenants, individual people were responsible to make and maintain peace with the gods. But under his new covenant, Jesus taught that he would make and maintain peace, like once and for all, by shedding his blood on the cross. Moreover, because it was his faithfulness and not human obedience that brought about this peace, people no longer needed to worry about where they stood with God. In other words, in Jesus' reinvention of religion, freedom and clarity could replace uncertainty and anxiety. And that, as ancient peoples noted, is good news. It's where we get the word gospel. It's, it's good news. Not only for, for, it's good news for the world. All right, so that was the first thing that Jesus did. Second thing Jesus did is he gave his followers a new commandment that was to serve as like the defining ethic of his movement. Instead of an endless list of rules and regulations and signs, nod to the opener, right? Jesus taught his followers that if they honored just one commandment, just one, they wouldn't need any others. And an early pastor by the name of Paul who wrote over half of our New Testament phrased this new commandment this way to a group of Jesus followers. He said, when it comes to your relationship with God, the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, if, if Jesus is your savior, if you believe that his blood has covered your sins, all you need is love and love is all you need. Oh, come on, work with me. Everybody loves the Beatles. That's an easy one. All right. Anyway, Paul understood that love really was the one thing that could change everything because he had heard this from Jesus and he'd experienced it in his own life. And the command to love fundamentally redefined what it meant to pursue a relationship with God in this life. Okay, so by all accounts, the church got off to a pretty incredible start when it came to loving people. There are ancient records of early Christians adopting unwanted children into their families and demonstrating care and compassion for poor people, whether or not those poor people were themselves followers of Jesus. It's like no exaggeration to say that the love early Christians put on display left their neighbors simultaneously captivated and curious. And you got to understand, like, these early Christians didn't have Bibles, not like we would understand the Bible. They, they only had stories about what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done, and they had an understanding of this mission to love like Jesus had loved them, to love with no strings attached. So even though they didn't have the Bible, they, they, they still, for the first few centuries of the church, 
uh, were able to gain cultural traction. More and more people drawn to this new way of being human in light of what God had done for us. And then the story takes a pretty dramatic turn on a very specific date. The date was October 28, and the year was 312. And on this date, things got complicated or started to get complicated for followers of Jesus. Here's kind of my summary of what happened. The Roman emperor at the time, an incredibly humble man that went by the name of Constantine the Great, <laughs> right, was on his way to battle when he had a vision of a cross in the sky. And as the story goes, he also heard a voice say to him, in this sign, as in, in the sign of the cross, conquer. Well, Constantine was so moved by this experience that he stopped his troops and painted crosses on some of the shields before going into battle, a battle in which they were victorious. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this series of events ignited Constantine's curiosity about the God of the Christians. And perhaps more significantly, this moment laid the foundation for what would later be known as the Holy Roman Empire. The only problem was that, as we'll soon see, the empire was more Roman than it was holy, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, um, a year or so after that vision, Constantine officially legalized Christian worship and began to pour government money into the church. He also elevated the status of bishops and priests and began to construct new sacred places anywhere that he learned a Christian martyr had died. And there's actually more. He also banned crucifixion, he gave rights to children, and he made money available to families who would take in and care for orphans. Finally, he made churches exempt from taxes, which practically speaking meant that if rich people converted to Christianity and dedicated their properties to God, they would avoid taxes. And it's a subtle shift when you first start to think about it, but you play it out, and basically for the first time since its inception, it paid financially to identify as a follower of Jesus. Perhaps most significantly, almost overnight, because of all these ch changes, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. The church gained power politically. And now this in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but over time, its privileged position changed the focus of Christianity, and it became increasingly difficult to distinguish it from the Roman Empire and its goals. Moreover, like newly empowered and resourced church leaders slowly began to create their own version of a Christianity that looked a lot more like the traditional religions that God had sent Jesus to replace. In short order, there emerged new sacred places and new sacred leaders who would interpret the sacred text for the sincere followers. Well, Constantine also decided to push for theological unity among the churches. He wanted everyone to believe the same thing. And as a result, Christianity became increasingly creedal and organized itself and identified itself around a specific set of beliefs. And, and again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed if you grew up in church. Um, it's the one that begins with these words, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and some of you could keep going, I could keep going, right? I'm kind of a nerd and I like to memorize these things, but yeah, I mean, the, the Apostles' Creed is a, an amazing piece of literature. Um, and I studied extensively when I was training to be a pastor, we, we studied the creeds a lot, but the problem 
with the Apostles' Creed and pretty much every other creed is that they don't mention love. Like, not at all. In fact, there's no mention of behavior at all. And what this means, practically speaking, is that you could intellectually subscribe to a creed. Yeah, I believe all that to be true and pretty much do anything you wanted to do. And by the way, this is why Christianity became so belief-centric. And it's why Christians began arresting other Christians for believing the wrong things. So the implication of all this is that a Christian version of a traditional religion was born. And the mission and message of Jesus sort of faded into the background. It was still there, but it definitely wasn't the focus. Well, as our story continues, 700 years passed. I told you I had to fly high. And in the year 1095, the first successful crusade was initiated. And here's what I mean by that. A man by the name of Pope Urban II uh, promised people that all of their sins would be forgiven if they participated in what he called a God-ordained mission to rid the city of Jerusalem from Muslims. Consequently, pretty much everybody who had made sin a lifestyle or an art form and was worried about where they might spend eternity joined in the crusade. And in the coming months, uh, this group of soldiers essentially raped and pillaged their way through Europe and into the Middle East to carry out their mission. Moreover, as they were traveling, it occurred to them, like, if we have permission to kill the Muslims who inhabit the city of Jerusalem, then why not also murder those people who were actually responsible for Jesus' death? Why not seek revenge on the Jewish people? And so along with the Muslims, Jewish men and women and families and children were murdered throughout Europe by the Crusaders. To be sure, it was a dark time in the church's history. But you also have to understand, almost no one had access to a Bible, save for a small group of monks. And everyone but those monks kind of forgot what Jesus had intended for his followers. Again, I think it's still lurking in the background, but it had been, those priorities had been, been overtaken by other things. So the next date in our story is the year 1517. And that's the year something called the Protestant Reformation began. And, and again, here's what happened. Several Catholic priests, chief among them a man by the name of Martin Luther, set out to reform the Catholic Church by realigning it with the teachings of Jesus. So Luther was a Greek scholar, and New Testament was written primarily in Greek, and he understood that much of what the church stood for, prioritized and taught at his time, couldn't be found anywhere in the accounts of Jesus' life. And Luther took particular offense to the church's selling of something they called indulgences, which were basically a way for people to purchase a reduction in the punishment for their sins. Well, in response to his protest, Luther and his contemporaries were excommunicated from the Catholic Church, but in the process, they brought back something into focus, some really powerful ideas. The most popular was identified by this phrase, they called it sola fide, or by faith alone, uh, from the Latin. And that's the idea that people are made right with God not by our good deeds or by following a bunch of religious rules, but by faith or belief or trust in what Jesus accomplished on our behalf when he died on the cross. And it's no exaggeration to say that this became the hallmark of Protestantism. This, along with a conviction they described as sola scriptura, or by scripture alone. And that's the idea that the Bible and not the church 
was to be the ultimate authority for how we understand both God and his will for our lives. And by the way, sola scriptura is why the reformers were so passionate about translating the Bible into languages that people could actually read. What a novel idea, right? Uh, In fact, Martin Luther famously wrote, and I love this, he said, a simple layman, so just an average person armed with the scripture, armed with a copy of the Bible is greater than the mightiest pope without it. So now while all of this sounds, sounds good enough, we should note that the Reformation was not without its problems. Because without meaning to, within the hands of the reformers, the Bible sort of became a weapon. And within a few generations, you had Protestant leaders splintering into different denominations as a result of differences in what to believe. In other words, in short order, you had more sacred leaders in sacred places with sacred texts telling people how to live their lives and how they could get into heaven. And if we're honest, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that if you look back on the history of Protestantism, Protestants have kind of been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. That's why we got the word Bible thumper. Are you familiar with this? Maybe just me? Yeah, yeah. Some of you are like, dude, you just described my childhood. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, we'll start support groups up next week. Just kidding. Um, Anyway, as I think about it, like the real tragedy in all of this is that at the end of the day, love lost. And we ended up with a whole bunch of Christian versions of the same ancient religious systems that Jesus had been sent to replace. I can like only imagine, and this didn't happen, so save your emails, just imagine this with me, right? At least a few times throughout the last 2,000 years, like Jesus and Paul looked down from heaven's balcony. I know heaven doesn't have a balcony, right? And they sort of looked down and just like in horror, and Paul might have looked at Jesus and said, what happened? And Jesus is like, that's a great name for a talk. Okay, yeah, what happened? And, and Jesus would respond, I don't know how I could have been any clearer. I mean, I mean, Paul, remember like the last supper I had with my disciples, like that last supper, the famous one, Leonardo did a great job capturing that moment, right? When, when I like bent down and washed the disciples' stinking feet, like they'd been walking in the streets where the animals had walked and, you know, the animals weren't potty trained back then or now, right? So they had some stuff on their feet and I, I got down and I washed their feet, and then I looked at them, and I said, you remember this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then I even did this so that it would be totally clear, by this, by this love, by the way, you love like I loved, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Like, I couldn't have been any more clear. I mean, the disciples never forgot that. Like, what happened? And Paul might respond, you know, you're right. And I, and I know, but and no offense, Jesus, I think I said it even more clearly. And Jesus is like, you, you're better than me. And Paul's like, I didn't go that far, right? But, but remember when I said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love? Like that's the only thing that matters? I mean, it, it's amazing when you think about it. How could something so clear become so complicated? And how could something so pure and love-centric go so far off the rails? And if you've been around humans at all, you're like, oh, I know, <laughs> people got involved. Yeah, true, right? But, but, but what I want to do as we kind of come in for a landing is I want to talk about you and me and how we might be able to get this a little bit better today. Because perfect is not going to happen. Because again, humans. But how can we get this a little bit better? And so I spent some time this week really wrestling that down. And as I think about it, 
I think it starts with each of us taking an honest look at the religious assumptions that we carry. And some of you are like, I don't have religious assumptions. Oh, you do, right? It probably came from your childhood. You haven't thought about it in these terms. But how do you think about and understand God and what he wants for you? These are the assumptions that subconsciously drive our pursuit of God. And so what I want to do before I let you go is help you, help you kind of examine those assumptions by asking you just three questions for reflection. You can talk about them at Panera afterwards or wherever. Don't all go to Panera, though. The line would be terrible. You can go to Cadova too, or wherever you want to go. Uh, the first question goes like this. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you could get without sinning? And don't nudge your teenage son next to you. It's really rude, okay? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm telling you, like, during my time as a youth pastor, this was a question I got asked all the time. Like, a student would come to me, generally a guy. That's just how that goes. But anyway, they come to me and say things like, there's something that I would really like to do. But I really don't want to go sideways with God about all of it. So, so how, where, like, where's the line, right? Like, how far can I go before God's mad at me? How far is too far? And I'd always tell them the same thing. Like, well... Under Jesus' new covenant, that really isn't a great question. And they'd always look at me like, huh? Yeah. And I said this, instead, you should be asking this. If I do this, am I loving people like Jesus loved them? And always when I would say that to a young guy, he'd go, oh. <laughs> See, because he knew the answer. And I was like, that's why this is such a powerful, powerful thing. So first question, have you ever wondered how close to sin you could get without sinning? Second question goes like this. Have you ever felt guiltier about missing church than you did about how you treated someone at work? Like something happened and it really didn't, it, it wasn't a great week and you said some stuff you wish you could take back and you did some stuff you wish you could take back. But then, you know, you also missed church that weekend and what you could think about is like, God is going to get me. <laughs> Not because of how you treated someone, but because you missed one of these religious expectations that you placed on yourself. And, and if you've ever had that thought, I think we've all had that thought. Whether you realize it or not, you're operating with old covenant thinking. Said another way, you're more concerned about the vertical, the, the relationship you have with God and maintaining it, than you are about the horizontal, those relationships you have with other people. And, and because of your faith in Jesus, like we need to remember like we're under a new covenant, one in which... Our love of God is authenticated and demonstrated by our love of people. So that's the second question. I'll give you one, one more. And this one, this one is a hot one. Check this out. Do your beliefs ever get in the way of your loving people? Ooh, right? Do your beliefs, do my beliefs ever get in the way of us loving people? And if so, and it's, this is normal. Like if this is you, welcome to the club, right? But if so... You need to know, again, this is not life under the new covenant. I mean, according to Paul and according to Jesus, loving people is always to take precedent over religious beliefs and convictions. In fact, I was thinking about it. I, I think you could summarize the message of Jesus to us this way. Like because of his sacrifice on the cross, God is fine with you. Praise God. Now, you need to figure out how to be fine with other people. Like, God is fine with you. And, and I tell you, once you realize that this is true, it changes everything. 
It means, and I mean, again, this is good news. There's no sin that puts you outside of God's love for you because his grace has no limit. One might say, it's amazing. We should write a song. Got it? Yeah, it's amazing. And, 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 and in response to this amazing grace, he wants to invite us to join his revolution of love that after 2,000 years has as much potential as ever to make this world a little more like he wants it to be. A new covenant, a new commandment, and a new mission and purpose for the people of God in our world. I'm telling you, this message is no less revolutionary than it has ever been. And it can transform relationships, homes, communities, nations, and even our world because that's what Jesus had in mind all right so now um, with that if you're here in the room I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer and uh, once again this week if you've come in to this place and you need to pray with someone um, something is happening in your life and it's it's disturbing and you think the history lesson was great but really what I need to do is talk to somebody Love to invite you to come under the screen right over here after we pray. Um, and we'd love to meet you and, and just spend some time praying for you. Um, also, um, as I pray, I'll once again remember the people of Ukraine um, who are navigating just an impossible situation. Um, my friends over there continue to fill their Facebook feeds with just cries for help and prayer um, and, and strength. And so... Uh, yeah, our hearts uh, go out to, to the people of Ukraine as well. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the simple, beautiful, revolutionary message that Jesus brought to us. And thank you uh, for grace that though it has not been done well, um, you look forward and you say, all right, let's try this again. Thank you for preserving the accounts of what your son said and did for us. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of a mission that is so much bigger than us. And I pray that as we embody that mission, um, we would mark this world. Uh, we, would, we would mark this world for you and the people would be drawn to you because of the love that we demonstrate. We pray as well for our brothers and sisters and neighbors in Ukraine. Please be with them and we pray with them for peace to be restored to their land. Thank you for the gift of your son. We will forever praise you because of him. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part four of Reinventing Religion.